0: You formed your business entity for the protection of you and your family. Don't blow it by signing business contracts in your individual capacity. It's the Keith Law PLLC podcast, and I'm Jason Keith, attorney in Houston, Texas. Keith Law is a Texas-based law firm that helps businesses protect and enhance their competitive advantages by assisting with trademark issues and identifying and protecting trade secrets. The firm's goal is to help businesses prevent and address business problems. And I hope this podcast will do the same. Business entities are important for managing risk of running a business. We want to, we as a society want to incentivize entrepreneurs taking business risks and try to help manage the risk by permitting business entities such as corporations and LLCs to serve as a shell within within which to conduct the business so that the assets of the business are all that's at stake. I write in quite a bit more detail on this in the blog post that's related to this podcast episode. But for this episode, I wanna talk about the small business owners signing contracts, simply signing contracts in their individual names, And they're signing business contracts with their individual names because they think of themselves as the business, which is understandable. In many cases, they are the business. The difference is if they took the care to form an LLC, which is a limited liability company, or an Inc, an INC, it's a corporation, or other liability limiting entities, it doesn't make sense to sign business contracts without using the entity to sign the contract. I think in many cases, the small business owners just don't realize that they're signing individually and it has legal implications. Usually it won't matter because everybody's going to perform and there's never going to be a lawsuit. It's in the unlikely event that there is a lawsuit that a plaintiff is going to be looking for anyone he or she can to add as a defendant to the lawsuit. Knowing that a liability limiting entity such as a corporation or an LLC only has assets related to the business. A plaintiff's lawyer is gonna look for any other potential parties with assets. Adding the individual owner for the plaintiff's lawyer can have the added benefit of adding pressure, psychological pressure or negotiating pressure to the defendants in the lawsuit. Anyway, I'll, I'll go into more detail in a minute, but I just wanna uh, get out of the way that the way a business contract should be signed is A, identifying the business entity in the beginning of the contract. I'd prefer that the DBA not be mentioned, but if a DBA or assumed name is mentioned, it needs to be clearly identified as a DBA following the name of the legal entity. In my examples, I'm gonna use XYZ LLC as the entity. So if XYZ LLC wanted to include their DBA in the contract, it should say XYZ LLC D slash B slash A, ABC. I'm perfectly happy leaving the DBA out of the entire contract and only identifying the entity. The only time I think it would probably make sense to add the DBA on purpose to the contract, following the name of the XYZ LLC, is if the parties have done business together in the past and maybe there was a mistake or an oversight or just informality, only the DBA was mentioned previously. Adding the DBA following the LLC and the first paragraph of the contract will help clear up any confusion later on. Again, in the unlikely event that there is a lawsuit, people will be able to point to the contract that identifies both the LLC and its DBA, and then any previous emails, other communications, other agreements where only the DBA was identified. It'll make it a little bit easier to connect everything together with less opportunity to confuse the judge or the jury. Okay, so I'm trying to quickly get to the way a contract should be signed. First, the entity is unambiguously identified in the first paragraph where the parties are identified. Then in the signature block is the second thing I'm gonna talk about. In the signature block, instead of just signing the individual's name who's signing the contract, the LLC will be identified first. In our example, XYZ LLC, followed by the words by, colon, signature, of whoever is signing on behalf of the LLC. I like it, but it's not necessary to type out or print the name of the signatory below the signature. But after by and the signature, I like the word its i t s colon, and then fill in the blank, the authority with which the signatory is signing, its director, its manager, its owner, if it's a 100% owned corporation, for example. There's probably a hundred different identifications that could be added after its to connect to the signatory's authority for signing for the LLC or the entity. It is important, however, that the signatory actually have authority. In most cases, that will be assumed. Occasionally, another party will want proof of authority in the form of possibly a corporate resolution. In other situations, the signatory may want proof of authority in case there's a concern on the part of the signatory that someone may argue down the road that the person for whom the signatory is signing did not actually have authority to sign for the entity. This is an even more rare situation than suing on a contract to begin with. But if it happens, it's a situation where the defendant entity could file a cross-claim against the signatory, trying to argue that the signatory didn't have authority and that any liability that's found against the entity should actually be, that actually the signatory should be held responsible for it legally. Anyway, the purpose of this podcast is not to encourage you to have a corporate resolution memorializing the authority of the signatory, but I did want to just mention some situations where that could occur. Again, going back to... The basics, the entity is identified in the opening paragraphs of the contract where the parties are identified, showing that it's the entity that's the party. Then in the signature block, the entity is unambiguously identified as the actual party signing the contract and its agent is signing. So it'll say by the name of the agent, its, and then fill in the blank with the type of authority with which the signatory is signing. Keep in mind that nothing's guaranteed here. And when we're talking about risk management, we're talking about trying to do everything we can to manage the risk, understanding that we can never completely eliminate all risk. So what we're accomplishing when we carefully sign the business contract is we eliminate one avenue of arguing that the individual should be included in the lawsuit. Most plaintiff lawyers are gonna try to come up with an argument or at least explore available arguments for including the individual because the general principle is, the more pockets the better when you're suing. That said, signing properly is low-hanging fruit and should always be done. The areas of law we're looking at in deciding how is the proper way to sign a contract We're looking at areas of law called corporations law, agency law, and I also like to look at the law of negotiable instruments. In corporations law, all you really need to know for purposes of this topic in this podcast episode is that legal entities are treated as people from a legal perspective. So XYZ LLC is a person. So when XYZ LLC enters into a contract, XYZ LLC needs to sign the contract. But because corporations can't sign for themselves, they can only act through people. We look to the law of agency. When you sign on behalf of another person or when you sign on behalf of your entity, you are their agent. They are your principal. In agency law, an agent needs to be acting with authority. And when an agent signs a contract on behalf of their principal, the agent should reflect that they are acting on behalf of the principal. That's why in our example, we have the word by preceding the signatory's signature. And we have the word its, and then the title or the um, description of the authority. For example, director, other examples, manager, even member. Why do I like to look to the law of negotiable instruments for coming up with best practices for signing a business contract? Well, even though it's not perfectly applicable to every contract, I like this statute found in Texas Business and Commerce Code at section 3.402. If you do decide to look at it, it's very complicated and you could spend some time looking at it, but the gist of it? is that the signature block needs to unambiguously identify the principal, the entity, and that it needs to be signed for by the agent, acting unambiguously as an agent. Preferably the identity of the principal, the LLC in this case, would also be identified up in the document. What about personal guarantees? Personal guarantees exist. It's usually an addendum to a contract where the owner or some other individual signs a personal guarantee that says, if my business entity does not perform on the contract, I will be 100% responsible for the debts and obligations. That expressly gives a plaintiff in a breach of contract suit an opportunity to go after both the LLC and the individual. The difference between that situation, the personal guarantee situation that I just described, and the mistakenly signing a contract on behalf of an LLC or, or other entity, but inadvertently signing it individually instead of on behalf of the LLC is, in the personal guarantee context, you know what you're doing. You know that you're exposing your assets, your personal assets, to those obligations in the event of a default. You've weighed the risks and you've decided to do it. The earlier example where it's a business contract and the owner simply signs individually without thinking about it is different in that, A, it didn't have to happen most likely. In most cases, the other party is not gonna require a personal guarantee. And the problem with providing this kind of personal liability inadvertently is, in the event of a lawsuit, there's a very good chance that you're going to want to be removed individually From the case, the legal maneuvering required to try to get that to happen, which is usually referred to as motion for summary judgment practice, can be extremely expensive, time consuming, stressful, just like everything in litigation. I think I mentioned very expensive, but also without any guarantee as to its success. And the reason for this, and I hate to go down a rabbit trail is that a denied motion for summary judgment cannot be overturned on appeal. Only a granted motion for summary judgment can be reversed on appeal. That's just a practical reason, among others, that motions for summary judgment are often an uphill climb. What does that mean? That just means that there's a very good chance that you're going to be taking the ride individually all the way to trial, even if the judge ultimately decides at trial, possibly even after trial, that it's improper for you to be included in the trial decisions individually. Summarizing the episode, we're talking about risk management in business. It makes sense to get a business entity to conduct business. Then once you do, have the entity itself conduct its business. One way of doing that is to enter contracts properly on behalf of the entity and not individually Remember that sometimes personal guarantees make sense, but don't expose your personal assets to possible liability unknowingly. You can find this and all the episodes of the Keith Law PLLC podcasts on most of your podcast aggregators of choice, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, and Amazon both have podcast directories now. I personally prefer the Overcast app, but it uses the iTunes directory, so... More importantly, to find the related blog post, you can go to the website, keith.law. From there, you'll see the word blog in the header. And once you get to the blog page, you can either explore the table of contents or you can click categories in the header there where you'll find Keith Law PLLC podcasts and all episodes and related blog posts. And if I have any YouTube videos related to the podcasts and the blog posts, you can find those there too. Questions and comments can be posted in the blog page or emailed to jason at keith.law. Disclaimer, this audio is for informational purposes only and should not be misinterpreted as legal or other professional advice. If you have a legal question, you should consult with an attorney in your jurisdiction. This is Jason Keith thanking you for listening to the Keith Law PLLC podcast.